0: All right, everyone, I want to introduce you to Bumper, a new DeFi protocol that is here to redefine how you protect your crypto assets. Obviously, market volatility can be a big concern for us crypto holders. Go check out Bumper. It's Bumper.Fi. Take a step towards smarter crypto asset risk management. Hey, everyone, before we get into today's episode, I want to take a second to acknowledge Vouch. With over 4,000 startups insured from napkin sketch ideas to large IPOs, vouch is the insurer of choice for crypto companies including l1s l2s DAOs, protocols and a whole lot more their exclusive coverages are enhanced for crypto covering everything from regulatory defense to smart contract vulnerabilities with vouch you're not just insuring your startup you are investing in peace of mind so you can keep on building you'll hear more about vouch later in the show Welcome back to another episode of Empire. As promised, we got the Blockchain Cap folks on the pod. We have Spencer and Alex, GPs at Blockchain Cap. Spencer, Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Great to be on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pumped to have you guys here. All right, lot to talk about. Um, you guys just raised $580 million, two different funds. Haven't seen a fundraise like that in a long time. It's also 10-year anniversary of the fund. I think that makes you guys one of the maybe the longest running crypto fund. Spencer, I'll throw it to you. Can you just tell us, I'm going to pick into this fundraise a bunch and just want to know as much as possible about this raise, because it's it's a colossal amount of capital in this market, two years into the bear market. Tell us everything that we should know about this fundraise, how long you've been raising, who you raise from, as much detail as you can. Yeah, so let's see. I suppose probably, you know, what, what helps explain the ability to
1: kind of like raise that amount of capital in this market environment is really... Probably the how institutional in nature the LP base is, right? So you know historically, allocators to crypto venture funds are pretty much going to be maybe some family offices and high net worths, right? It's been very fortunate that over the past uh, let's see almost six years now, we've kind of been building up a larger and larger base of institutional clients, and so that just means you know uh, pensions and endowments, sovereign wealth funds. Um, and then also strategic partners. Um, so we're fortunate to count um, folks like PayPal and Visa as strategic partners. And like in general, the, the nice thing about having this kind of those those large institutional allocators, they tend to be very consistent, right? As long as you're maintaining the relationship with them, you're putting up the performance that they want to see, they're typically going to keep investing from one fund to another, regardless of market cycle, right? And a lot of these LPs have been with us through multiple market cycles. So they're already a little bit numb to it in the same way that we are, right? They're like, oh, great. So you're telling me that um, there's a dearth of capital in the industry and you guys are going to deploy into that? Like, great, sign me up. That's, that's going to be a great vintage. Um, so, so that's probably like what explains, you know, being able to pull in, you know, 580 million total. Of course, that's across two funds in the depths of a crypto winter and, and bear market here.
2: What was your target for that fund out of curiosity? Was it a billion? Was it 600 or?
1: It's actually almost exactly the target. So, so there's two different funds. So we have our, our sixth early stage fund. That's what we've been doing for the past decade. Like this is our bread and butter early stage seed series, a equity tokens, um, the the whole kind of gamut there. Um, That one, we had a target of 400 and it came in at 380. And then on the, we have an opportunity fund. Um, And so this is series B and later. And we had a target of 200 and it came in at exactly 200. So, um, you know, for both of those, they were very, very close to their targets. Um, You know, when we originally started thinking about those target sizes, it was not as brutal of a crypto winter. So I'm not going to pretend like it was really easy, but again, we're fortunate to have the LP base that we do that, that sticks with us.
2: And was it like a big overlap? Like it was just rolling funds? Uh, From a prior vintage that they, you know, capitalized, crystallized on, and they just rolled out some of the gains into this new fund. What is the overlap? Like, what is the composition of that LP base? Is it like 100%, you know, repeat or, you know, how much of that is new?
1: It's a good question. I'd actually have to pull the numbers to be 100% certain, but like we can do some math here. So our last fund, our last early stage fund was 500 or sorry, 300 million in size. Um, and so we're looking at about 600 total across them. So like, even if we rolled everybody with the exact same commitments, that'd only be half of it. Now, in this case, I think, you know, pretty much everybody rolled over into the new fund. Um, a lot of them, you know, upsized into it, but then we also added in
0: some new, some new LPs into the mix as well. Hmm. Was there any thought about going about raising too much capital? Right, you've seen some maybe someone like some of the biggest funds. You, it, it becomes really difficult to deploy that much capital into crypto. There are folks like maybe Benchmark, who I think they, I think it's Benchmark, they cap their funds at three fifty somewhere around there. Was there any conversation about like is this too much capital to deploy into crypto at this point?
3: Oh yeah, we definitely talked about it a lot. I mean the the fact is, crypto is a pretty immature technology overall. It's been around for a relatively short amount of time. And, you know, I'm constantly amazed at, at how many interesting types of applications and, um, and use case have been developed so far. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, like we're still exploring a lot of the white space here and the opportunity set isn't in the, you know, I'd say like many tens of billions right now, like the capital you saw get raised over the last couple of years. And so, when when thinking about it you know our in our last fund which was 300 million we felt undercapitalized and so mm-hmm. we knew that we had, we were going to go higher than that but thinking about a billion plus started to make that math really difficult we want to be able to participate at the earliest stages and have that be meaningful at the fund level and so we found a nice middle ground that i think is in our view appropriate for the stage of the market right now and
2: the opportunity set that we're seeing yeah and so from a structure standpoint you know, there are funds that have raised like a billion dollars, but it's not all called capital, right? Because it's, you know, maybe 10, 20% of that's been called. You guys are structured purely as a venture fund. So you're not calling that, you know, 500 plus out of the gate. You're kind of like saying, "Hey, we're going to deploy this over a three to five year period. And so, and then harvest that at the, towards the tail end. Is that accurate? 100%
1: 100% accurate. And, and the other thing about like the, th- the way that we've thought about fund growth a lot is, you know, th- there is this inherent uh, attraction for all asset managers to manage more capital, right? Like that's their business, right? But we've always had this perspective that we need to stay aligned with our LPs, which means that the fund sizes need to be relatively constrained, so that we're oriented towards performance, right? We need to deliver performance for them. And that's the only way the business is going to be enduring across, you know, the next two decades. And for us, the way that we try and translate that is from going from one fund to the next, we need to grow it at a rate slower than the growth and the opportunity set in the industry. And as long as we do that, we're not going to be saturating the market, and we're not going to be um, diluting the returns for for our limited partners.
2: Yeah, a lot of times, uh, I mean, back in my days in Parafy, just talking to LPS, a lot of what they granted it was structured as a hedge fund. But we would go out to market like not constantly; there would be windows. And I remember one of the things that LPs had looked at a lot was you told us you were going to do X, you did Y in terms of the strategy. And in crypto, as you said, Alex, look at the design space, the opportunity set is ever evolving. And how much of like how much of your LPs were looking at that? Like was there a recurring set of questions where they like, Hey, look, we love what you did here, but we didn't like you went this way. And we didn't like it. And was there something like that that ended up hurting you, quote unquote? Obviously, you were successful in raising what you wanted, but I'm curious if there are some LPs that have been with you for a long time that just said, hey, look, not anymore. Like we we just were out. And was it because of the industry, regulation, risk, or just you as managers, stewards of capital? I'm kind of curious how you think if if there's something there that you can give us.
3: Not really. Um, You know, I think we've done a pretty good job of being consistent, and that you know, part of that is having been doing this for for a decade now. We've been investing through all the major cycles in crypto, and I think have refined a strategy that at this point is is you know fairly stable, and we're not you know seeing a new fad and and kind of jumping on that and like moving the entire ship in a different direction. Like we're, I would say, pretty steady, um, and. And our our partners on the LP side, um, I think have, have come to expect that, and and we haven't really deviated from it much.
1: And I think like you know, so, so much of of life in general, I guess, is expectations management, and that's a lot of what we've worked on with our limited partners. Of like, here's what you should expect from us, and we want to be constrained enough where they understand what they're getting into, but not so constrained that we nicheify ourselves. Right? Like, it's amazing to me. It's funny when when you know, we were raising our you know, four funds ago. One of the main pu- major pushbacks we'd get from limited partners was, I don't know, the industry just seems really small. It's too nichey, which is funny now because sometimes prospective limited partners ask us, why don't you guys just focus on just do DeFi or just do infrastructure? I'm saying, listen, I don't think that makes sense for where we're at because the ability to cover the various subsectors of our industry is to the benefit of our LPs. And so like we guide that into the expectations that like we are gonna go across the industry and some of the investments, they're gonna look different than what you're expecting. And like the reason why you're coming to us is to deploy this capital on your behalf. And that's what we're going to do. Now, like there's a very delicate balance there of both respecting the guidance and input from your limited partners and letting them steer the ship. And that dynamic is actually the exact same as we have as investors in the founders that we back, right? We want yeah. to be there as a sounding board. We want to set expectations with them, but we're not going to step in and call operating shots for them, right? We backed them to make those calls. They're the ones in the trenches every day. They're the ones looking at the data. They're the ones talking to clients. Mm-hmm. So like it's their decision to make and we're here to help, like, help them think through it and pull it out of them, but not to never to overrule them. Yeah. And so we try and mimic that relationship with our limited partners of like, listen, you're going to see us do some stuff that seems off the wall because crypto is going to be a little bit off the wall. It's not just going to be putting your mortgage on the blockchain, right? Like you're going to see some crypto things that you've never seen before. And like, you should be excited about that because that's going to be kind of like the, I think that's going to be the lion's share of the opportunity.
2: Yep. Of course, we're not supposed to talk about returns, but I mean, I think the biggest point here is, are you outperforming Bitcoin and ETH? And of course, some funds, because of their size or because of the market, just go back to Bitcoin and ETH and just holding the benchmark. And, you know, in the absence of an ETF, like, you know, that's kind of, I guess LPs are fine with that because they don't want to do it themselves. I am curious, as you think about, you've raised a fund now, um, you can call the capital, the opportunity set is interesting. A lot of the kind of open question now is, you know, the relative opportunity between holding Bitcoin, holding ETH versus doing your series a or pre-seed and I'm curious how you think about that and how you think about deploying this capital that you've raised.
3: Yeah, so I, I mean I, I think over the past 10 years it's been very difficult if not impossible to outperform uh Bitcoin and ETH depending of course on on when you enter the market. Um, looking forward, I mean these are these are large market cap assets at this point. They don't They don't move at the same rates that that they used to, at least with respect to to the prices now. Um, And and so we think that 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 starts to change. These are obviously really strong benchmarks to have. And in our thinking, when we look at underwriting an opportunity, it's certainly something that we consider, like, does this have the potential to to outperform ETH Uh, in particular as it relates to like an Ethereum-based protocol or application, I think is perhaps the most relevant question that you should be asking when you're looking at underwriting something. And so... That's our goal. I mean, we're we're absolutely here to outperform Ethereum and um, you know, and Bitcoin from here. And I think, based on where those assets are at today, like we have a much better chance of doing that, um, especially with you know the the quality of the founders that we've seen enter the space over the last two to three years.
0: Hmm. Spencer, I noticed in your um in your fundraise announcement, a lot of the things you pointed to, there weren't like NFT data, It wasn't gaming metrics. It was, I actually think you put it very. Uh eloquently is like in the depths of a crypto winner, you said six trillion in stablecoin volume, seven hundred million of DeFi protocol revenue, seven hundred billion of DEX volume, and three billion of outstanding loans across the two largest lending protocols. Feels very and then you had other stats as well. Feels very DeFi focused to me. Is that the thesis moving forward? Or is that almost the pitch that you made to LPs in the room? They got excited about DeFi, maybe gaming and NFTs fell flat. Why was the why was this kind of the thing that you you honed in on? honestly just my personal like kind of interest right like i mean that you know you you
1: just did a good job laying out the numbers there and i think like i actually pulled just across chains for the stablecoin volume i think it's like seven and a half eight trillion over the past year of of volume six trillion on ethereum alone right so I, i pulled it up after i kind of put out that that tweet or that that press release but um for one like hell of product, product market fit right there, right? Like in the depths yeah. of a crypto, crypto winter, like seven and a half trillion of stablecoin volume, 700 billion of DEX volume, 700 million of, of protocol revenue. Like that's product market fit right there. And I think that- Wait, like, Spencer, hold reason, on. So many people are yeah.
2: questioning that crypto doesn't have product market fit. What are you talking about?
1: I know. <laughs> I know, it's absurd, right? Like these numbers are objectively like massive, right? And this is when people are still writing it off. Like people are not even paying attention right now. And you're putting up those kind of numbers, like, and the reason why I'm focusing on DeFi is because, you know, from the outset, we have had the thesis that DeFi would be the thing that works first and that we think that blockchain technology, crypto can be applied across many different subsectors, but sequencing matters of when those things are going to hit. This whole industry was born out of Bitcoin as a financial asset and the Bitcoin network is a financial network. So it it has always intuitively made sense to us that the first vertical you're going to see impacted is going to be financial services, financial products, right? So it's no no surprise. And I think what's happening in DeFi matters for all of the other subsectors. Like let's take let's take like the gaming use cases. Let's take the consumer, the social, all of those. The basic primitives are financial in nature. It's ownership. It's transactions. It's the ability to exchange. Like all of it kind of comes from. From DeFi, so like that's what I'm watching as the canary in the coal mine to understand like what else might work in other places.
2: Yeah. In terms of, um, you know, how you think about, you know, the sequence of DeFi getting off the ground. I mean, you could have you could look at any sort of legacy DeFi protocol relative to ETH, and it's grossly underperformed even before rates started moving. No, you think about catalysts. you could see that as a great opportunity now when you look at fundamentally, like there's protocols out there that are trading at distress P multiples. Like you walk around Silicon Valley, you talk to venture capitalists, tell them, hey, this is an early stage company growing 100% plus year over year. Um, You know, you could argue the addressable market is, you could say it's fintech and you tell them it's profitable. They'll hand over fist and even in this environment, give you a check. You know, Instacart's not even profitable they going public at multiple billions of dollars and these protocols are, are not, right? And so how do you think about the timing of you're a venture fund, you have to at some point return capital to your investors. How much of timing and catalysts and your horizon for how this tech is going to actually live up to its promise and acquire users and like, it's tough, right? I mean, because as you said, Alex, we're a decade in and we have 10 users in DeFi. It's great tech, 10 users. So how do you think about like is 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 this the next decade is this is this fund where we see millions of users in in, in crypto like cuz timing is everything in in many ways
3: yeah i mean i think you know e- defi was born in an environment where the infrastructure wasn't ready to accommodate um, mainstream usage right like eth got bloated really quickly transaction fees were were through the roof um the, the DeFi thesis at its core, I think, is powerful. And to your point, like th- these are massive markets that DeFi is going after, just like Bitcoin is going after a massive market and stable coins go after massive markets. In general, I mean, that, that's one of the most exciting things about crypto. Like you would expect a new technology maybe to go for like niche use cases initially, but crypto goes straight for the juggernauts. in um, you know, with, with DeFi specifically, you know, global permissionless financial services, are, I think at a very fundamental level, better suited to serve the internet economy and will grow with it. And so, you know, that that's kind of at its core, like our, our thesis in terms of timing, you know, you're not a daily active user of a, of a mortgage. I forget who gave that quote originally, but I liked it a lot. And so, you know, the user numbers for DeFi certainly we couldn't expect to look like a game, for instance. But the amount of capital that the system has amassed, I would say, is is quite impressive. The volumes have been very impressive too. And then we got to a point where retail was a, a major driving part of that, um, and then started to get caught in um, in basically unsustainable transaction fee environment, um, which you know I think really put a damper on, on adoption at a time when the attention and the spotlight was, was all over DeFi. So I think there's a couple things happening there. One, uh, the infrastructure simply wasn't ready for DeFi, we're getting there now. And I think in the life of these funds, we're gonna have infrastructure that's high performance, that's cheap to use, that's secure. Um, and we've, we've seen a lot of progress on that front. So today, the things that are possible to build in the DeFi realm are you know much more accessible to people around the world than, than things were three or four years ago. Uh, the other thing that's been, I think, holding DeFi back, and this is still where we, you know, don't have clarity, is on the regulatory side. Like there, there, there is no clear path for for a DeFi founder to, to scale their applications or products to users, in particular in the United States. And so, in in some sense, like innovation in that space has been paused. Um, we're still seeing, you know, interesting things, but like to me, the really like the zero to one. Um, events in in defi mostly already happened i'm open to to there being new uh, innovation leaps there but like defi amms like dexes that are that are open and um and lending pools were were kind of the the really powerful core primitives that power defi today and we saw you know a huge amount of like let's say like one to n innovations on those where like you tweak the amm a little bit and try and get a more optimal um you know, tr- trade route and we haven't seen a lot of those really be powerful enough to get people excited. So, um, you know, what, what I think, what I think we're waiting on here is like this next leg of of users. Like DeFi is kind of, I mean, like financial services generally. I think the power users of those tend to be institutional. In particular, when you think about the next leg of of innovation, DeFi, like derivatives, comes to mind for me. And these are not really retail products. These are products for sophisticated users of financial tools um, and and so you know a lot of this really I think comes down to how fast institutions can get comfortable using th- this new financial infrastructure so it bleeds into into tokenized markets we're seeing um, I think some some pretty exciting developments on that front with you know folks like Blackrock um, angling to enter the space uh, would wouldn't be surprised to see them do something big in in the next couple of months. Um, and uh, and it's just going to take a, take a long time. Until then, you have you know the major potential user here remains like crypto Dgens and Dow treasuries and perhaps forward looking neo banks.
0: Hmm. Alex, it was funny leading up to this podcast. You remember the um, you remember last time we had dinner in New York? The topic we were talking about it was no. The right. Unis- it was the Uniswap fee switch, which is such a. There's no way in this market anyone would ever even consider that, which tells me, I mean, that I I forget when we had dinner, six months ago, nine months ago.
2: Why not would you consider in this market?
0: The state of regulation in the U.S. is so much worse today than it was six to nine months ago. And the reason Uniswap can't turn on their fee switch is uh, for regulatory reasons, I would would argue. I don't know if you guys would agree with that. But um, I'm curious. So, Alex, you mentioned regulation. what, What this is all leading into is when you look at the future state of where you guys are allocating capital especially in defi how much of it is going to be outside of the us because of what's ha- happening in the states cuz prime historically you've allocated a lot of your capital inside the us i'm curious how you see that changing moving, moving forward
3: yeah i mean I, I would say like over the past 10 years we probably invested 70% inside of the us 30% ex-U.S. i mean crypto of course is a, is a global industry and um, we have a lot of connectivity with groups all around the world that are just innovating on this stuff but um in particular over the last 2 years that's kind of flipped and so we're we're probably closer to like 50-50 US XUS with a pretty strong trend towards XUS which is unfortunate we want to see this industry built in in the United States the US had an early lead i think on on the R&D and the brainpower in crypto and you know, honestly the the regulatory environment in the US has been um, not constructive at all and they're they are putting the us at a strategic disadvantage when it comes to crypto markets so expect that trend to continue for the time being but you know we're, we're optimistic that the us gets on the right side of history eventually spencer anything you'd you'd add there
1: no 100 percent. i mean it's definitely global we we, we, do, we try not to focus geographically like the thing we have to be conscious of is you know rule of law and of course a regulatory overhang so, like, here's a weird thing about investing in DeFi is, you know, if the primary value accrual mechanism is not going to be in equity, but it's going to be in some, some token or digital asset and it exists on a blockchain, like, the good thing is it's really hard for a corrupt regime to just seize that, right? Whereas my equity, pff, you kidding me? Like, you know, like all of a sudden, you know, some despotic dictator, like, decides they're like, oh, wow, you built a nice company there. And you know what? I don't like these foreign investors being on this cap. Like, nah, I don't really like this ownership. Guess what? You don't own it anymore. And, like, the chances of us winning in court, you know, depending on the jurisdiction, like, we're not going to win in Russia, right? Like, congratulations, the business has been seized. Like, in the odd chance that you actually deliver, like, you know, a successful outcome on a company, like, your winners get taken away from you. But the cool thing on crypto is, like, if it's going into a crypto protocol, like, the risk is lower there, right? Like, I, I don't have to worry about, like, suddenly it being seized overnight. So, it's a funny dynamic, but... But Cynthia, you also touched on something earlier, which is like, you know, thinking about DeFi protocols, if these were just traditional fintech companies, you're right. I think investors would be writing checks left, right, and center, hand over fist, right? Take the money. And I think people should be very frustrated and pissed off at the pace of innovation in fintech and traditional finance. Like if we, let's look at the past 15 years the major innovations that fintech has delivered—it's been buy now, pay later, so like Affirm and Klarna, right? Great, I can pay for my sandwich in four installments. That's kind of cool. Um, you can fractionalize shares. That's Robinhood. Um, over collateralized lending to startups. That's Brex. Uh, APIs. That's Plaid, right? So now, now my bank can talk to my fintech app, and. Maybe payments. There's been some stuff in the payments By the space, way, cloud
2: right? is not necessary in a world of composability. I'm, oh, there's I'm, a of I'm shit going that there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's exactly
1: where I'm going with this. And like, okay. so th- there's one other category that's delivered a bunch of winners in fintech in the past 15 years. That's payments. So it's been digital payments, we get Stripe. Cross-border mm-hmm. payments and remittances, we get Revolut, Remitly, TransferWise, right? Now let's consider all of those innovations in a crypto context. Actually, you know, but before I even go there, here's the reason why people should be pissed off that like the pace of innovation is not faster in finance. It is the invisible thing in your daily life all the time. When we make it a little bit better, it has a ripple effect through the entire economy, right? It might be invisible, but like it produces economic surplus for everybody. And like, we should demand more. We should demand a faster pace of innovation. So now going back to those categories we just discussed, there's like $250, $350 billion of market value from the companies I just mentioned right there. Like just from those companies created from all of these items, which by the way, Santis, you just hinted at, crypto does all these things out of the box. Except for one. There's one that it doesn't do. It's the buy now, pay later. We don't have that yet. Sorry, like you won't be able to pay for your sandwich and like pay for it in four installments. But like all the other things, like let's think about it. Like fractionalizing shares in a crypto context, how weird is that to think about? Like, bro, just move the decimal point. That's it. That's it. You fractionalized. Good job. And like Robin has a $10 billion company, right? Like the ability for, like you said, Santi, for my bank to talk to my FinTech app, like, hello, this is what smart contracts do out of the box. Like they talk to each other. You can like, anybody can integrate them. And let's see, like over collateralized lending to startups. Like, by the way, how shocking is it that that like, and by the way, I'm not trying to like fault any of the founders of these companies. They did a great job. These are fantastic companies, right? They did a good job but like think about brex brex was founded i forget like maybe 2013 and their major mm-hmm. innovation was realizing realizing that wait a minute if a company has 10 million dollars of cash in the bank i can probably give them a 1 million dollar credit line <laughs> like because the the regular lenders out there were just like i don't know i don't see any i don't see revenue well, t- and cash flow like, bro i have I, there's 10 million dollars in the bank like
2: that's you what up up, uh, well you bring up a great point because One, I think it's regulatory capture. Like, there's a great slide. 100%. Finance is just regulatory capture, like healthcare. Um, And it's just embedded in that is a whole issue of local fiat shitcoins and central bank policies. And look, the government wants to control the money supply, and and finance is one of those things that's heavily regulated. And I get it. You know, it's people's money, you know. Um, We've had our own faults in crypto, like FTX. FTX is not a crypto problem. It's a finance problem, meaning counterparty risk and not having transparency into the operations, which if you want to be critical of FTX, you're not critical of DeFi. You're critical of the traditional financial system and the regulatory arbitrage that has created the lack of clarity and yada, yada, yada. But the problem is, um, you know, the second point I want to make is like in my appreciation, I would have, you go talk to any bank right now, to your point around Brex. The reason why large banks are not servicing smaller uh, businesses is because they have been saddled with a bunch of, New regulations that are ever evolving, and there are, there's two departments in banks that keep growing: finance, like accounting and compliance. The back office, back office and compliance, are the two only departments that keep growing in banks because it is incredibly costly now to run a bank. And so, what does that mean? That they can only service their most profitable, largest clients. And so, there's a whole underserved market. I'm not talking about like emerging economies. I'm talking about it, even in the U S there's a whole set of businesses that are, don't have access to just simple finance products. But you know, with crypto, I think if you talk to a bank today, we had a great guy, uh, JP Morgan's head of crypto here. And they're like, we love crypto because we can cut a bunch of costs in the back. end." you tell me atomic execution. Great. Transparency. Great. The problem is like you don't have privacy and without privacy, they're not going to come and build on-chain. They're not going to use Ethereum to settle stuff. So I'm kind of curious. Again, it goes back to this point around timing. Like, I hear you. You need a catalyst. Uh, there arguably is some tech that still, still needs to get built for these players to show up and start using DeFi. Um, and so from a kind of like themes or interesting ideas that you're looking at, like, what are some of the more exciting kind of pieces of innovation that you you guys are excited about that you want to fund that haven't been built? Um, DeFi or just generally infrastructure related?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, on I guess like you know, our, a lot of our infrastructure investing has been in response to uh, problems at the application layer that we saw over the last you know five years of investing in categories like DeFi, gaming, consumer, and NFTs, and so on. Uh, we we got. Really excited, in particular, about zk, um, different use cases of zk um, on scaling, and then some of the new things coming out of companies like Risk Zero on the zk coprocessor side. You know, on scaling, I think it's fairly widely considered um, the to, to be consensus that you know zk rollups are are the at least for now the way that we're going to scale Ethereum. So. You know, we we got really really excited about that. We went and led Matter Labs's Series C. We really liked the product that they have. We really love the team. Um, with with that, you know, you get a a better security model. You're um, you're verifying correctness on chain in a really succinct proof. So you can push a huge amount of computation off the chain, and you know, without sacrificing correctness. So what that lets you do if you're, is, is basically you can lean out on the risk spectrum with off-chain data availability. That means you can accommodate games, you can accommodate microtransactions, all sorts of new use cases that haven't uh, been you know, economically feasible until now, and that frankly still aren't with the, the current uh, state of, of roll-ups, which have scaled Ethereum by, you know, by, by roughly 10x, Right. Like it's, it's maybe 10x cheaper to use to use a roll up today that that needs to be 100 to 1000x cheaper. And so, you know, ZK roll ups are, are the way that we get there. Um, and, um, you know, the the opportunity, I think, to to create a new environment where you do transactions in this kind of modular way where Ethereum really is like sprouting new uh, execution environments on top of it adds a lot of potential from, uh, from a developer you know, design space perspective. So in the case of ZK Sync in particular, they introduce an LLVM-based compiler under the hood that'll eventually let developers write smart contracts in, in popular programming languages. So we get to like deviate a little bit from the EVM and then really crack open the design space for the types of of applications people can build and the types of tools that they can use to build those applications. You also get really neat features like native account abstractions. You can build much better authentication schemes, much better key recovery schemes and, and better user experiences overall where applications could, you know, pay gas for their users, allow users to pay in any, any token move. If they want to pay gas in USDC, great. You Um, And then eventually you'll get privacy as well. And so I think some of those like institutional use cases get unlocked by by virtue of of new execution environments with differentiated features, um, as well as kind of solving the issues that like the crypto native users Mm -hmm. had in the last cycle. So that's on the scaling side. We think that's that's sort of well underway. And uh, more and more applications are are deploying first on on L2. So that's been great. I think L2Beat has this like wonderful chart of, like all l2 activity superimposed on ethereum activity and the scaling factors like how many you know overall transactions happen in the ethereum context if you include l2s it's like a little under 6x right now um, so um, you know that that to me is a, is a really good sign of progress obviously that number needs to get much much higher um, but um but yeah but 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 there's progress underway on you know on the other side ZK coprocessors these are like I think not particularly well understood today, but like more generalized versions of what um, what the zk rollups are doing. So it's really like you could think of it as like a verifiable computer that could handle arbitrarily complex computations off chain, and then return the results of that computation to Ethereum, you know, alongside as your knowledge proof, so that Ethereum can verify that the computation is valid. And this. You know, like blockchains by, by nature are like constrained in, in the types of, of computations they can run. And that's been a lot of the reason why applications have been designed the way that they have in a fairly limited way. Um, and, and this lets you just, I think, vastly expand the, the types of applications mm-hmm. you can build again, and include more computationally um, intense things. So, um, so we, we see that those kind of new infrastructure pieces as both like scaling Ethereum, scaling the performance of it, lowering the costs, making it more accessible, but then also changing the the design space for for developers and allowing them to run all sorts of experiments, build new types of applications. We've you know we we've also been excited by things like restaking, um, by by uh, you know what what EigenLayer has basically pioneered,
0: and then some the, the identity space as well, but. Um,
3: yeah,
0: I have to harp on any of them, Spencer. How do you think about this? Because in the in the beginning of the conversation, you said this thing. You said the lion's share of returns will be in things that you've never seen before. It's not gonna, it's not gonna be putting your mortgage on the blockchain. Um, what do you think about this? I mean, obviously, Alex men- mentioned like very deep infrastructure investments. I would call that. What sure. else do you think about when you think about these kind of like weird, esoteric ideas that like haven't been seen before? But you think that crypto enables. So let's see, so I I think the catalysts that that
1: Alex just mentioned there are all fantastic. Like they're a little bit behind the scenes, but they are like, they're the hidden catalysts. I think that enable developers to build the next wave of applications, right? So I think that those are like the, the major hidden catalysts, but like when I try to impart on our LPs of like, why are you here? One of the main points I need to drive home with them is that crypto has a structural advantage in innovation. And this goes back to kind of my complaints about the pace of innovation and fintech and TradFi. And Santi, I totally agree with you. It was like a regulatory capture problem. It's an anti-competition stance. It is not a... It's wrapped up in they like, let me protect you. Like, and I won't go down the rant of like how it's literally like their own studies are like 99% ineffective in actually stopping illicit transactions. Like, sir, oh, a 99% failure rate? Like, are you kidding me? Like the only thing that... It's worse than the TSA. I think the TSA catches like 5% of illicit items that are supposed to go through, like on their own self tests right? Okay, I won't go down that. But like, the important thing is that crypto has this structural advantage in innovation because of this dynamic of it being an open platform that anybody can go and build on. That is extremely rare in the world that anybody can pick it up with minimal platform risk, right? Like the chances that the rules suddenly change underneath them drastically reduced from what we've ever seen before. And so you take this dynamic where anybody can build and like, you're gonna unleash innovation. Like the hard thing about innovation is it's really hard to predict. Like people don't know where it's gonna come from. If we knew where it's gonna come from, we just impose it, like have a dictator just say like, go and do the innovations, do this one and that one and that one. But we don't know. So like you wanna maximize the number of experiments, you wanna increase the number of builders, and you want them to be able to get out there and try things. And like literally that in open blockchain is that. And then you add on to that, it's like the first layer that's like I'd say the most important piece of the structural advantage in innovation. But then you take on this dynamic where I can remix anything that's already out there, right? I can pull the stuff off the shelf. I don't need to I don't need to recreate the wheel for everything new I want to build. This stuff is out there. I can take bits and pieces of it stitch those together, add something new and create a totally different application, right? Like that's huge. Mm. And then lastly, just the fact that I can make all of those things talk to each other and integrate with one another, like that is, it's just such a powerful combination. Like it is this massive tailwind that is just radically underappreciated as far as when people ask of like, okay, how do we get from A to B? That's the answer. Yeah, You yeah. enable everybody to get in there.
0: All right, everyone, I want to introduce you to Bumper, a new DeFi protocol that is here to redefine how you protect your crypto assets. Obviously, market volatility can be a big concern for us crypto holders. Bumper alleviates this by allowing you, the user, to lock your tokens into the protocol and set a price. No matter how much the market fluctuates, your investment in your token won't fall below the predetermined value. When you compare this to traditional options platforms, Bumper offers a non-custodial and actually cheaper on average alternative that protects the value of your crypto from market price drops. If you are looking to earn a Yield on your crypto, Bumper has you covered. By depositing USDC into the Bumper protocol, you can earn a return which is derived from the premiums paid by protection buyers. Early adopters and Empire listeners have a chance to claim a part of the $250,000 early adopter Bump Rewards. Go check out Bumper, it's Bumper.Fi. Take a step towards smarter crypto asset risk management. All right, everyone, wanted to talk about Vouch again, our favorite insurance provider for crypto companies. If you are building in crypto, you have probably come to realize that contracts need insurance, partners demand insurance. And as a founder myself, trust me when I say, you owe it to not only yourself, but your investors, and your clients and your customers. And I'm not just talking about any insurance. Their exclusive coverages are tailored specifically for crypto companies that can address issues like protections for regulatory defense, recognizing DAOs as insured, addressing smart contract vulnerabilities, and even covering the loss of digital assets. They're in it with you, whether you're working on L1s, L2s, DAOs, MPC wallet providers, building a protocol, and a lot more. So whether you're just scribbling your next big idea on a napkin or Gearing up for a big fundraise or maybe thinking about that IPO or an acquisition, don't leave things to chance. Get insured today with 5% off vouches, exclusive coverage for Empire listeners using code Empire. Think about it this way: with vouch, you're not just insuring your startup, you are investing in peace of mind. I have a question that I've always wondered that I guess applies to not only blockchain cap, but I guess probably all crypto venture firms. I'm curious how you handle this when um Curious how you handle it if you, let's say you make a bet on an on an ecosystem. Let's say you're making a bet on L2s. zk. Let's say you make a bet on ZK um, and you pick ZK Sync, it sounds like. But then in a year from now, you realize that maybe ZK Sync isn't going to be the winner. And there's this other investment opportunity that you see. Maybe it's like Scroll or maybe it's Arbitrum or something else. But you've already allocated to ZK Sync. How does either a venture fund in general handle this or how does blockchain capital handle this? so uh, yeah, I mean we
3: we try to put our founders first always within categories to the extent that that a new company is directly competitive with with something that that we're already invested in, that makes it pretty difficult f- for us to do it, and we would never do it without the consent of the founder so that that that's the first thing that we do you know there are certain cases where um you know where a founder might say, you know it actually could be useful to have you guys as mm. kind of a shared stakeholder in each of these, maybe there are ways that we could work together. Maybe there, there's, um, you know, area for for um, cooperation, basically. And we can kind of like take the view that the pie is going to be really big, big enough for multiple players. And if we just steer around each other and perhaps work together on certain things and then like own different parts of that market, um, then we can both do better than sort of like going down in a knife fight against each other. And so that I think has been the more common pattern that we've seen with founders, they've been, I I think, surprisingly, like, happy to have sort of a mediator in in between them. And that often avoids, I think, Mm -hmm. a lot of the, um, you know, more, more unfortunate, um, you know, zero sum thinking that that can sometimes happen in like fiercely competitive markets.
0: Yeah. And how do you think about some of the, like the recaps that are going on right now, or some of the like, 80% discounted secondaries. Like when you look at something like that, is that exciting to you? And maybe it's almost a, I'd call it quotes around this old school crypto company. Like that's maybe been around for five, six years and they're doing, you know, maybe they're raised at 3 billion. They're down. They're trading at like 400 million in the secondary. Are those kind of deals exciting right now? Or you're really just trying to do like the newest, most innovative companies.
1: No, they certainly can be
0: like our,
1: Actually, so we we haven't talked much about our opportunity funds. That's the second of the two. That's the series B and later fund. We actually, so it's the first time we've ever launched a different product. We have always stuck to early stage. There's been a lot of pressure along the way, right? A lot of prospective LPs that have said like, why don't you go and launch this additional type of vehicle? Like call it a, a hedge fund or a active participation fund, like a bunch of different types of things. People have come to us and we've said, Listen, we want to stick to what we know, and that's venture, and specifically early stage venture. Now, what happened in the one times the one exception we've made of launching a different product with the opportunity fund was sitting there in the middle of the bull market, and it might have actually even been Alex that first brought this up. Of like, there is an absolute like gluttonous orgy in the like late stage market. Like, it is sick what's going on here, and people are going to get wrecked. So, like, a lot of these funds are going to disappear. And like, I'd say that's probably what defined in private equity and venture specifically over the past decade was like just the absolute gluttony in that mid to late stage of the market. And like those things always correct themselves. And that's what we've seen. And so like in this past market cycle, a ton of seed and series A stage companies are funded. A few of those are going to grow into that mid to late stage of the market and the capital has gone. Like there's not very many people that can allocate to it. So he said, listen, if there's a time when we're going to step in and do this, it's now. So we start, you know, once the cycle turned, we went out there and, and raised that capital. And, you know, we've made two investments out of it so far. And, you know, I think we'll, we'll make another eight to
0: 10, maybe. Hmm. What is the state of that space right now? Series B, Series C, like how, how big are the discounts right now? It's just so tough because
1: in the market cycles, you know, there's multiple ways for founders to play this game. Right? like They can say, I want to maximize valuation. I want to get the cheapest capital I can. And that, that is one way to play the game. And then right now, we're seeing the downside of playing the game that way, which is you've oriented your investors, your team around that last valuation, and it's going to be really hard to ever get that valuation again. Or at least it's going to be hard to get it if you need to raise capital in the next few years, Right. So that puts you in this tough position of like potentially appearing to have lost momentum, even if you've made forward progress. So I think it is tough for a lot of companies in that stage. The good thing is at least for most of the ones that we know, they raised enough capital in the good times that they don't need to go out to market and do a primary issuance.
0: Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. It's tough. Cause if you do that, if you have to raise it, this, you know, 70% haircut, You've got a lot of it, it's it, it, the toughest part. Almost becomes it, motivating the employees who are never going to get see a dollar on their equity, right? So, um, hundred percent, and that's part of what
1: you try yeah. and guide them to. But it's always hard because when it's coming from a prospective investor, you know, there's a conflict there, right? It's like you're just trying to talk me into selling some of my equity at a lower price. I'm like, yeah, hundred percent. Like that's in my business. I want to buy your equity at the best price I can. But I'm also just trying to make you aware of what can happen when a cycle turns. And yeah. the, the fall off in retention of your key employees is a major downside of that. And it's like something to be aware of, of like, right. you'd rather have them come in, like you want them to be, have ownership at a level closer to where you are, right? Like not maxed out where there's no upside left on it.
0: A hundred percent. Yeah. I think a lot of the folks who raised at the height of the market or oh, facing that right now, just talking to other founders, like maybe they raised it a hundred X revenue, their revenues down 50% or maybe even 70% right now, but they raised it a $700 million valuation. Now their revenue, now their revenue's is down to like 3 million. Well, now you're looking at like a 200 X multiple on, so it's, it, the numbers just don't add up. So, um, Spencer, you had this tweet. I don't have it pulled up but i could try to find it you said something along the lines of like Worldcoin is 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 the single most misunderstood project in all of crypto and i I think that was uh you, you got to fact check me i think it was back in may i want to say or maybe early june i'm pretty sure you tweeted that are you feeling more convicted or less convicted about that now you know four months later
1: hmm equally convicted it's a long it's a, this is a long horizon thing yeah, yeah. um you know like listen we, we'd probably need to do an entire episode on Worldcoin because i have a lot to say about it um but the reason the place where that tweet comes from is because i know because i was in that position right i'll give you some some backstory some context is someone on our team starts flagging in our internal slack channel hey you know we're always talking about who else might be going out and raising and like where we should allocate our time and someone had flagged, hey, WorldCoin, I think, might be coming up for a raise soon. Should we go talk to them? I'm the first to jump in there. No. Like, I want nothing to do with this. Like, this dystopian thing with hardware. No way. Get it out of here. Don't waste your time. Let's, let's allocate our resources elsewhere. But it took a couple of the engineers on our team. were are like, Spencer, that's, that's fine. That's your view. I don't know if it's a very informed view. They're like, I've looked through the docs. Have you looked through the docs, Spencer? And I just sit there and kind of, you know eyes down like no 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 i didn't and they're like well you should probably go and talk to them and learn a little bit more about it um before you just kind of come off with this surface level judgment so we went and did that and i was still like hell bent on we're never going to do this deal i'm just going to i'm going to prove to you that there's this is not an interesting opportunity and like the further we went the more i completely flipped to the other side i still think it's one of the most interesting most novel things that's going on in crypto like we see a lot of clusters of things there's nobody else in that category where they think operating at that kind of scale in terms of the vision of what they want to deliver. And like, I think at a project that at that scale, there's going to be plenty of things to critique, but they're not the things that people talk about. Like what I see about lot their time, it's like, just go, please spend it. Like, it's the same thing that I did. It's like, please go spend a little bit of time reading the documentation. It's very well documented. Actually very good. Like great engineering team. Um, so yeah, I don't know. We'll have to save it for like a whole nother episode because like Alex knows, like once you get me going on it, like I'll, I'll rant for a while.
0: <laughs> well, I had a similar experience. I didn't get uh, like as bold up as you did clearly, but, um, <laughs> I met Alex Blanya. I went into the office in San Francisco yeah. and met with that and met with Alex Blanya. And, um, I was hyper skeptical. I was almost, like, I, I consider myself to be like pretty outgoing, friendly person. Like even in the office, I was like, I was, I'm like a little skeptical to even meet this guy. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a really impressive um, combination of like hardware, biometrics, and crypto. And um, I don't know. I just I just tip my tip my cap to anyone who can work on something that challenging, right? So it, it,
1: that's the way it framed. it. It's like the most noxious combination of things. Like, are you kidding me? Like biometrics, yeah. identity, crypto. Like, oh my god! Like that's that's a lot to take on. Um, and listen, hey, we may or may not be successful, but like it is the most viable effort that I've seen. And there's some really interesting things going on underneath. And like, I think it can enable a lot.
0: Yeah. Alex, what do you think? So I kind of liked Spencer's framing there. Like it's, I like a lot of things in crypto, but that's probably the most misunderstood thing is world Is there anything that you look at Alex, when you look at the industry where you're like, look, everyone's all hyped up on this thing. Like there's, well, like, what do you think is the most misunderstood thing in crypto right now?
3: Yeah, I mean, we saw like a huge wave of interest um when, you know, when the LOMs started getting released and, and got really popular. And then, you know, everyone's talking about AI times crypto. This is going to be kind of the biggest intersection um in 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 tech. Um, and you know, we tried really hard to see that. I think long term we see sort of a huge amount of potential there. I think there are some really big short-term challenges to realizing that. The vision that, that that a lot of people have in in, in that intersection, um, that you know, made it difficult for us to, to to get there. We're still really excited about it, but like you know, maybe to be a bit more specific, like. A lot of people doing uh, AI inference on chain. I think the the selling point there is mostly around verification and trust. And so, like, do you trust the black box of, of chat, GPT, Bard, and and you know Claude and, and the likes? Um, I think today that's not really what people care about yet. And you know, trust is a fragile thing. You you really start caring about it once it's broken. So um, it. it it's easy, easy to say now before that that's really been violated in a big way. Um, and, and the time will come when, when that happens. And and then I think you'll see a catalyst for, for using some of these, these crypto and, and AI um, models. Um, but you, so, so that, that, that's kind of one of the big selling points. I think, I think it's going to be hard to convince people to use it right now, especially if you have to take a hit on performance and cost. Um, and, you know, the other one is autonomous agents or smart contracts like using AI it's, really interesting concept it's niche for now. it's far from any product market fit. AIs you know don't yet feel exact enough in in my view to put a lot of capital behind them without supervision. so it feels like more like a subjective oracle and I'm not yet sure what would be a really good use case for that. And so you know I, I think there's also a case to be made for decentralized training uh, and, and compute, uh, perhaps labeling as well. in the training case, you know I think people make a cost argument. Uh, remains to be seen if that materializes it appears to be for now at least theoretical Um, and if i understand the argument correctly it boils down to uh, using latent computational resources Um, but i think as we've seen with with mining different types of crypto networks that's not really what happens in practice you need especially in the case of, of ai performant gpus those don't tend to be latent and so you end up with data centers that are chasing the incentives and you sort of revert back to the same economies of scale that give Microsoft, Google, Amazon an advantage. Mm, um, yeah. You know, I'll, I'll color that with like as decentralization gets cheaper and that overhead um, get, gets cut down over time, more and more consumers are probably going to want permissionless censorship resistant versions of these, these LOMs and other AI models. And so you'll see interesting decentralized markets develop for those eventually, but you need performance to be Good enough to be kind of somewhat competitive and for the cost to be manageable. And so like I would say short term, like overhyped, long term, huge potential. I
2: mm-hmm. mean, on, on that vein, I think you bring up a really interesting point, which is like why would you decentralize? Right. Not everything needs to be decentralized because you're making a huge trade-off in terms of performance. Um and 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 cost. And so I think that was like the biggest lessons from like the 2018 cycle hangover. It's like, Oh, okay. We shouldn't decentralize Airbnb and Uber. Cause it's kind of nice to be able to call, you know, a centralized party if shit hits the fan and your host doesn't want to open the door. Um, And so what are your, I guess in that continuation, like what are the biggest learnings of this cycle? You know, obviously there was a lot of blowups. The carnage is still kind of, there and real and the blood you, and so I'm kind of curious, like how you guys think about like your biggest learnings from uh, this, this last cycle.
3: You know, one, one thing that comes to mind is that things go way too far. Like things that, that don't work can get huge uh, be, before they blow up. And, you know, we were watching, I think with some level of material frustration as like algorithmic stable coins were ballooning into the tens of billions of dollars of, you know, outstanding debt. And that was a really frustrating moment because we were thinking, well, they weren't really supposed to get this big. Like the model is sort of inherently broken. How did it, how did it get to this scale? And then can you land the plane? It turns out, no. Um, At least that's really difficult. No one managed to pull it off. Um, So, you know, I, I think I was amazed at you know, how much attention, how many credible people you can, you can get behind a, a broken and false narrative, um, that, that was surprising to me. And, and certainly I'm going to have, I think a more <laughs> vigilant eye, um, in, in the face of like, um, you know, f- face melting growth,
2: Spencer, the hard thing with those
1: two is like, you know, you go in and you're like, Hey, we're not doing this. Like, it's not going to work. And then you watch it work for a while and you start to get nervous. Right. Like and you're sitting there and like, we were watching this at the algo stables. We were like, nah, it's not, these, these, like we're looking at them like, these are cool. Like run the experiment, please keep it s- small scale. Um, and then you start to watch them and you're like, Oh geez, are we just wrong? And you just wonder if like, do I just have, am I just too biased to see that this actually works now? Right. And so we're fortunate we didn't like switch positions. We didn't like all of a sudden decide like, great, we're bull And we're, we're in like right at the top. Um, but it is tough in those situations. Like, and we saw that with like most of, The major implosions like we had the same thing with ftx right like we passed it we looked at the seed we looked at the series a passed both times not because we expected it to implode we didn't know that right we did there was an obvious (laughs) conflict of interest that was flagged but more Mm -hmm. importantly it was flagged in the sense of like that is the only competitive differentiator here right like just going out with the message of like i'm going to build a better coinbase is like okay great how what are you going to do and like the messaging to me when i received that pitch was boom was we have alameda i'm like "Uh uh-oh
2: you're like where's the chinese wall and they're like yeah well you know uh, it's there but you know you could jump (laughs) over it fairly quickly i'm like that's not a fucking chinese wall
1: that's it exactly so like we're just like great easy to do but then for you know three years afterwards you're sitting there going oh geez oh i just cost my limited uh, partners a lot of money by not doing that Uh, uh oh
2: well that's that's exactly where i was going like how much i'm sure you had an lp call and say guys why didn't you invest in FTX? Sequoia. You missed, in, you missed it. You missed, and, and you in missed the, it. And in the game of venture, you can't afford to to miss these things. Right. I'm like, I'm just curious. Like, if to, like, I'm sure you got some LPs that were like, we're like, why you're not in Terra? Why are you not an FTX? Why are you not in, like, you know, X or Y? You know, surprisingly, not as much. At least I didn't feel them anyways. Like, cause
1: we, you know, each of us has different relationships with all of our LPs, right. but, um, I didn't get a ton of that, um, surprisingly. Like, I think that there's, I think there's just a level of trust from the several years of working together. Um, but honestly, if I'd been on the other side, if I was a limited partner, I probably would have made that phone call. <laughs>
2: yeah, uh-huh. yeah. look like Spencer, I, I I told myself, I never, uh, you know, manage outside people's money. but whoever your LPs are, they sound great. <laughs> I know, <laughs> I feel very- I'll no, maybe very have to fortunate. call you if I ever want to do this uh, again. Uh, What are, uh, I mean, algorithmic stable, because I want to go back to that because look, they're fascinating experiments. There is this idea that one can become skeptical of things that have been tried in the past. And look, crypto, no shortage. I mean, I think we've been in a journey over the last 12 years of try everything, see what sticks. How much do you go back and revisit old concepts and say, hey, maybe this time is different. The infrastructure is different. The whatever is different. And I know when you ever... You're not supposed to say this this time is different in investing because it it's like it's not. But credibly, the infrastructure is different. Like, as it relates to tech, you saw this in the internet too. Like, pets.com didn't work, but then you had, you know, basically a shift from CapEx to operating OpEx, open source, like radically reduced costs. And so that allowed for a business model that is sound to be viable. But then, of course, you had record low interest rates and you funded Instacart and, you know, things that never have terrible unit economics. But, hey, let's not go there. I'm just kind of curious if you actually are constantly reevaluating maybe even sectors or companies that you invested in didn't work. And then you say, hey, maybe, you know, L2s, it could work here. It could work in a different type of blockchain environment. I don't know.
3: 100%. I mean, I think we're constantly at risk of... um of being captured by our own biases. Having been in, in the space for a really long time, we've seen a lot of these ideas that, you know, are starting to, to work a little bit today Been tried, you know, five, six years ago and, and, and didn't work. I mean, I think a really good example of this is friend tech. Like this is an iteration on a model that that has been tried lots of times before and it didn't work. And And so I think, you know, at least the way we think about it, there's like There's different reasons something can't work and we we draw different conclusions when we see things blow up or or fail to get traction. And I think, you know, a reason not to revisit something again and kind of keep your door closed to that is like the, the model is fundamentally really risky and like cannot under any circumstance survive the crazy volatility in crypto algorithmic stablecoins fall into that bucket. Then there are things that just like aren't feasible uh, given the state of infrastructure today. And where at the time of our investment committee, looking at that, you know, three years ago, we said, well, you know, how are you going to manage the, the fee environment today or for the next three, four or five years, right? You're not going to be able to stay alive long enough for this infrastructure to get good to the point where you can scale it. Um, and, and so in in that case like what we try to do our best to do is just put a pin in it and say look this will work one day when when the the networks are performing enough and low cost enough and and the user experiences are good enough to get you know get regular users on, on board i think um yeah i mean you know friend tech has been a, a fascinating um launch and they, they've done a lot of things well, and you know, there's probably some some element of of luck and good timing there. People have been looking for like an exciting thing to engage with that feels new, and you know, they iterated on on that social model. I think in in some really nice ways too. So, so yeah, we try and try and stay open minded. We're obviously at risk of, um, of of coming to the wrong conclusion, but there's definitely two different categories here. There's like the not yet feasible, and then the we should never try this again. Which
0: I'm sure people will do algo stables one more time, but they they probably shouldn't. <laughs> guys, great conversation. Is there anything else that is uh, clearly missing from this chat or any big ideas that you guys want to talk about that we've missed?
1: No, I don't know if it's super important, but like, Santi, going back to your point of like thinking, revisiting things from the past,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it's such a tough one, right? Because like, once you've like ruled something out, or you've seen the experiment not work, it's really hard to have the open mind about when it is going to work again. And that that is mm-hmm. like one of these like natural things that's really hard about venture, I think. And like, I, I try to frame it, but it doesn't give me the answer, but I try and frame it in terms of sequencing, right? So like for our industry, you know, and this roughly matches, not perfectly, we should match it even better, for like our, the way we've deployed our funds over the past 10 years. But like, first you have centralized finance, then you have centralized infrastructure, then you get DeFi, then you get decentralized infrastructure. And once you cross that, I think that then it opens up the door to things like gaming, consumer, mm. social like some of those categories. But like, if you try and pull the gaming forward, like, and do it when you're still at the the centralized infrastructure stage, it doesn't work. Right. The timing's wrong. And we've seen this with like a bunch of our investments in the portfolio. I mean, we invested in, I went, I I was so bullish in DEXs in 2017. Like I went and scoured the market, invested in three of them.
2: Radar Relay. uh...
1: It was Radar Relay, Paradex, and Bancor. Right. Oh, yeah. So like huh. so so it's amazing, right? Like so so radar went on and ended up getting acquired by Core Scientific like years later. Mm-hmm. Um Paradex was acquired by Coinbase like three months after we invested. Um and then Bancor like kind of became the like the ugly child because it had a token, which was funny. And then and like it also did the just, largest
2: ICO and people were like, you know.
1: Yes, a hundred percent. And then they like, said impermanent
2: loss was not a thing, and you know, I look at it.
1: Yeah hundred percent. And now of those three, the one that I was not supportive of was Bancor, not because of any of those things that you just mentioned, but because this notion of the AMM, and this is where like you have to admit when you're wrong as a venture investor, I was like, no, this is not how you price assets. This is not an efficient way for pricing assets, right? Yeah. Like an order book is how you price these things in both radar and paradex were going order book models. It was off chain order book on chain settlement, right? I'm like that's, what's going to win. And totally missed this notion of like, no, The DEX serves a different purpose. It's not about being the most efficient pricing mechanism. It's about being able to price a long tail of assets. And that was what the market needed right then. And I'm like mapping over way too much of my TradFi experience and not recognizing that things can look different in crypto. I think that's the most important thing that I'm always trying to drive home with our limited partners. Like stuff is going to look different. It's not going to be what you
2: expect. Yeah, no, it's uh, such a good point because you're right. I mean, so many people like Bancor would tell you they invented AMMs, like they were the first ones, arguably true. And then I remember uh, back in the my days of Parify, I was pitching like you know Uniswap was raising around and 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 everyone that had anything, even the you know that came from finance, said, "Guys, this is flawed. Order books work better." And the idea that I think is, is there is like, yeah, you're right. Like not everything will look the same and it requires a set of like flexibility and saying, Hey, there's actually value here. Consumer preference being created when anyone can be a market maker. Maybe you don't care about impermanent loss. It's a good way to hedge. It's a good way to cost average your way in. You know, there's so many different things that, I think we're so early but it's such a true example of you have to remain extremely open-minded about things that may work and you know chris dixon talks about this really fancy term skeuomorphic and you know we typically tend to like how many people imagine that the smartphone would allow you to like do all the different things that you do today from streaming to hailing a cab and everything in between no one like the the giants at the time Nokia, Microsoft, like everyone kind of dismiss it. It's like, no, everyone wants to have a, you know, a Palm Pilot and their Walkman. Like, no, 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 no. Like this is not going to work. And so it's really fascinating. The pace of innovation in this space never ceases to amaze me. Um,
1: And Cynthia, you're you're dead right on that. Like, And it is like, I I love Chris's example of using like skeuomorphic stuff. It's like, you know, I've been framing these as like, Legacy boosters and horizon breakers. Like the legacy boosters are things that like take mm. all the stuff that we're already familiar with and do it like a bit better with the new technology. And like that stuff's great. Be like, that's like a, a USTC,
2: like a fiat bag, like, like, R- R-
1: like RWAs or something like that. Right. Like totally. RWAs. Like for the internet, it's email. It's like, okay, great. I can send this faster than the post office. But then we have the horizon breakers. Right. And that's like the things that are brand new that you couldn't do before. Right. And that's where you get like social media. That's where you get Uber. That's where you get Spotify. Right. Like, Essentially all the big internet stuff that we think about today, right? Like those are the horizon breakers. And like, it's funny because you can actually go back through time and look at all sorts of new technology. And this relationship has always been there. Like you can go back like electricity itself. Great. What can we use it for? Well, like one is light bulbs. We could replace gas lamps and candles with light bulbs. That's great. You know what it also unlocked? all of your in-home appliances, electric appliances, like you could have a refrigerator now, like that's crazy. That's crazy, right? In in computing at the beginning, like what do we do? Okay, we moved from having to use an abacus for complex calculations to using a calculator. Cool. But like, what was the horizon breakers? Like personal computers, gaming consoles, graphic design software, right? Like this is stuff that like, Mm -hmm. we couldn't do that before. And like, that's what's going to happen how do you in crypto. Th- it's going to be all the weird stuff.
2: Yeah. I mean, maybe a last question as you think about, it. I mean, this nice capital that you've raised, like, how do you think about the ratio of the category of those two categories and, and how much you invest in legacy boosters versus horizon kind of like, because, you know, not you, you know, you could be too early or you can make more money in legacy booster, but it's not as sexy. It's not as like, you know, I'm curious how you think about deploying that in these two buckets.
1: I think the temptation is always to deploy to the legacy boosters and the, the bulk of the opportunities in really- the horizon breakers. Like, cause I think everyone, mm-hmm. like that's the way we think it's closer. It's being like, okay, I can get, it's like a little bit faster and a little bit cheaper. Great. Like I can totally get that. Like, and again, it goes back to our example of DEXs, right? Like why am I initially dismissing this AMM idea? It's too different. I'm missing what it's mm-hmm. actually doing right now. That one's funny because it comes full circle, right? Like now things look closer to an order book, but um, Definitely, that's what I try and like, you know, when, when we're in our, you know, our investment committee, and we're in our research discussions, it's like trying to ask that question of like, which which category is it in? And like, both of them can be okay, we're not going to isolate to one or the other. But we have to be conscious of this inherent temptation to just do all of the same things, but on a blockchain.
2: Nice. That's a fantastic way to end it, guys. I mean, I, I'm really excited. Uh, I think a lot of our listeners also want to understand raising that fund in this environment. And it sounds like you have a great LP base there and uh, permanent capital, you know, as, as permanent as it gets, you know, seven, 10 year horizon is, is what we need. And I'm sure there's plenty of opportunities out there to deploy. So um, really, really fun discussion guys. Um, where can people find you founders? Uh, you, you guys have a blog, like learn about what you guys are doing. What's the best way to kind of keep tabs on, on how you're going to go out and deploy this, this good cash.
3: Yeah, we we do have a blog on our website. You can also check out all of our personal Twitters. Um, You know, a lot of our DMs are open, so uh, easy place to reach us.
0: Fantastic. Alex Spencer, thank you guys. Appreciate the time.
2: Thanks for having us. Always a treat, guys. Thank you so much for coming on.